0: you're listening to two guys talking wine with michael Pincus and andre prue hello michael andre how are you i was just overhearing you talking to yourself yeah i'm uh i'm i'm looking for some notes here yeah you think that we'd be better prepared for the podcast
1: well (laughs) i am prepared to a degree oh there it is i think maybe not uh because you wanted to talk uh a little a little french
0: i do um but first off but I guess then, let's talk about the um like not necessarily the elephant but the horse in the room does my voice sound okay uh, you,
1: you don't sound completely uh 100% yourself but so, you sound okay
0: so i went to uh, i4c last friday um had a great time it was it was a certain amount of catharsis seeing people that I hadn't seen in, in three years, almost, because of the pandemic. And then I guess a little bit of irony is I woke up Monday morning, my wife woke me up to let me know she'd tested positive for COVID. And uh, I took a test as well, so I've been dealing with COVID for this week. Yeah, so um, yet another reason not to, not to go to a Chardonnay event. <sighs> I knew you were going to make going to make that joke, but I mean it's been fascinating to see um a lot of people uh ended up down with covid after the the uh Chardonnay in the City event.
1: Yeah. So I'm kind of glad I didn't go. I've heard a few uh, people say that as one, well
0: too. Heard a few people say that as well.
1: One uh, because uh you know uh Chardonnay is still not my my grape. And uh after you and um Christine had your little tete-a-tete on the last few podcasts. We needed Uh, a break. You needed a break. With Chardonnay. Uh, I was like, hmm. Neither one of you has has really proven to me that it's it's the way to go. Uh, But then, I I must admit, I I did. I'm always good to pick up a buddy, Andre. I want you to know that. Because I had Christine back over to the house. And uh, here at the... uh, St. Catherine's Studio, and uh, we had a long discussion about Chardonnays from Ontario. And uh, lo and behold, I I did pick you up. I I poured some Wild Ferment trius, I poured some Klaus and Chase. Poured some Henry Pelham. And which, uh, vintage, of of Pelham?
0: which vintage of Henry mm-hmm? Pelham? Which vintage of Henry Pelham? Which
1: uh, vintage of Henry Pelham? we did uh, the current
0: right vintage
1: on. of. I think it's just the regular fourteen ninety five version.
0: You, you know, we need to we need to get Lawrence Bueller on the on the podcast. Um, and it's yeah, not I think it, he's doing a, gr-
1: a great job at. And Henry that's Pelham. it. It's that, it's
0: and it's not about me. It's not about me hijacking the um, the Chardonnay agenda again. But I think that's the canary in the coal mine for the portfolio at Henry Pelham. And I go back and I review the notes that I've made, and the wines have always been solid. But I mean, there was one trend that that came along up until Lawrence took over, and it was just like. It's very good, but needs time in bottle. It's very good, but needs time in bottle. Um, like just, I think they had um, an oak program that was a little bit too aggressive, especially when you're talking about twenty dollars bottles. And the moment that Lawrence took over, it was first with the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir that are being sent to us as 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 sample bottles for review. That is just like I, I have I have zero criticism. These are are fantastic age-worthy think, wines uh, like two to three uh, years uh, uh, in a uh, cellar but like they're completely drinkable right from the onset and fantastic
1: i wanted i want to say it was a 2021 shard that was 14.95 could have been the 2020 whichever one was the most recent and as i said 15 bucks christine was totally blown away she said oh, this has got to be a 30 shard and i said actually it's 15 dollars goes, in in bc this is 35 dollars
0: I appreciate you doing that because I think what happened. Christine and I had a conversation after after our podcast. And I think the issue was we we both put a little too much pressure on on both of ourselves to try to like put a, the best foot forward with the region and got a little too cerebral. Where what we really should have done was just like we should just rated the cellar with like two or three of our top bottles, and I think we would have had. A better podcast. I think we, were, we, I think we were working too hard as producers and not hard enough as just wine lovers to put together a really great episode on Chardonnay. So, I think down Correct, the road we I, will I, be doing something totally in the future. I totally
1: agree with you. And, you know, she kept saying, oh, well, I'm just trying to you know, I was trying to give you a, a, a view of, you know, east to west, north to south, regionality, and I'm like, no, nah, you you're, you're trying to Im- impress Andre with BC Chardonnay. And well, I mean that's I, the problem. I, that's, that's, I don't that's... think she she came across with that, and you were trying to impress with ageability, and you didn't pull that stunt off either. Um, and yet, I got uh, fourteen uh, wild ferment shard from Trius. I got a sixteen wild ferment shard from Trius, and I did I think a uh, fifteen closs and chase uh, churchside, and they all just
0: you know, you know, uh, knocked it out of the park. Every one of them. Well, there we go. So we, learned, so we learned something from for the podcast. And I mean, Michael, it's a lesson you and I tell the listeners all the time. If you come here expecting to learn something, we assure you it's completely by accident. <laughs> I mean, look at what happens when we purposely tried to learn something from the podcast. It was uh, not our finest hour.
1: No, no, I don't think uh, so. It's also a lesson that maybe you should, uh, you know, uh, not do Chardonnay. Oh,
0: shut up, Michael. Uh, And you know what, let's move past that because I think towards the back end of this, we're going to talk a a little bit about Chardonnay again. Um, But I I took a really great trip to France this summer. And, you know, it's actually really nice because a lot of people assumed that uh, this was a press trip and that I was traveling on someone else's dime. I did that to Abruzzo, but this was actually a vacation Um, and I got like completely off the grid it was really nice. I, I don't think I'd even talked to you much in like the two weeks that I was gone beyond like the odd comment uh, here and there. But like, man, I just, I don't know. I'm just reflecting. On, I was okay with that. Yeah. That's okay. I could, I could use a break from you too. Although, you know, you were supposed to be at my house today, which I was really looking forward to. Um, thank you COVID. Wow. Um, but, but yeah, no. That's, uh, that's the thing. You go, you, 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 you said to me, well, what better
1: thing do you have to do? And I go, yeah, not get sick.
0: Yeah. Well, but I mean, though, you were trying to weasel out of doing this podcast altogether, like you were going to try to go home and and just like have a free night. So I guess maybe you didn't get enough of a break from me while I was gone.
1: Well, I I was like, I I don't I thought you were not feeling well because the way your your message that you sent me, it sounded like, oh, boy, he's not doing well.
0: Oh, yeah. Honestly, honestly, up until today, it was pretty, pretty bad, but I don't want to dwell on if anyone has questions about what the what I'm assuming is Omicron has been like you guys can send me send me a DM. Uh, but anyways, I went to France and uh, Guillaume, who is one of the partners in the ADX wine company, a very good friend of mine, was kind enough to let us crash part of his family vacation. He hasn't seen his family in four years. Uh, so we spent four days in La Havre. And this is one where, um, like Michael, if you post this on socials, make sure you tag La Havre uh, Tourism. Um, if you've never considered visiting this small town in France, I highly recommend it. Um architecturally it's stunning it's a, a town that was completely decimated in world war ii so everything's been rebuilt since then so a lot of really fascinating uh, more modern really square concrete buildings and the cool thing living in hamilton now is the city really has a hamilton vibe to it and i kept pointing out the similarities to guillaume and at first he was annoyed until he just couldn't refute it anymore it's a city that's built on an escarpment so, like, Guillaume's dad lived up at the top of the escarpment. And when we went to some of the pubs downtown, we'd have to walk home. And I'd just be like, listen, man, this is like the stairs that I climb Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. It's a blue-collar town. Like, it's a port town. So, uh, when we were we were down on the coast, we saw these just massive ships coming and going from the city. But, I mean, like all other French towns that are not Paris, the people are incredibly warm and welcoming. Um, you will need a phrase book with you if you do not speak any French at all. English is virtually non-existent in the city, um, but I mean more affordable than Paris. But just a, a beautiful town, and I, I can understand how a wonderful place would yield someone as wonderful as Guillaume.
1: How did? Uh, well, that's a, that's an ass-kissing moment if I've ever heard one. Um, how did your uh, your bro- broken French turn out?
0: Oh, my French is excellent.
1: Oh, okay, just checking.
0: <laughs> uh, my written French is still is still a challenge, but I mean, speaking French, I didn't have any any issues while I was there. Uh, then, um, the back half of the trip, also, once again, on vacation, we spent uh, a few days in Saumur, and then, uh, I spent a couple of days in Burgundy. Got it. Okay. And, uh, geez, <laughs> we, COVID we,
1: you, uh, you passed along there. Yeah,
0: certainly not over the wire. Uh, we went to Saumur, um, as you know, we've had Alison Sloot on this podcast a few times. I take her quiz and fail miserably at it every week. Um, I am completely with you. And with the rest of the industry, and with Brian Schmidt, that Cabernet Franc should be Ontario's like one of Ontario's red grapes. It definitely belongs up there with Pinot Noir and Gamay. Um, however, I went to Saumur hoping to, I don't know, maybe find an answer to a question. Like, I, you know, I'm thinking about the future of where the ADX Wine Company is going to go and what we want to do next. I really want to put Cabernet Franc on the radar, but I'm not sure that I was con- that convinced and and really um, I shouldn't say that necessarily as a wine lover i I'm, I'm, I'm putting on like my my marketing hat in in terms of this because the quality of the wines were very good i i pulled up I pulled up three producers i know you have you got your notes from your tasting
1: i so i i do i I finally found i think the ones i'm I'm most looking for
0: do, so, do, do you want something, me to,
1: something that was done in uh, uh, the end of April?
0: Do you want me to just, I guess, throw out the names of the producers that we went to, what my impressions were, and then you you
1: can... can try because I I see I got a different I got a different view than you did obviously yeah and I'm, I'm and I'm... here's here's how I got a different view where you went to some producers that were they recommended to you or how did how did you end up picking these producers let's start there
0: um, some were recommended to us actually they were recommended to us I actually let Guillaume do the Guillaume do the planning and um, Guillaume and I are pretty in agreement with the wines that we like like it's it's not like Guillaume shows up at my house with you know some funky dirty hippie juice made by californians in their birkenstocks that's faulted to crap like Guillaume and i have similar tastes in wine so it's not like i was putting putting faith in in someone who didn't know what they were they were doing um so like i could like told you this was my vacation so i let him do the planning because he was the one who wanted to go to uh go to summer and we were happy to hitch along so I mean, the producers. I recommend. I asked for one producer, and that was uh, Catherine and Pierre Breton, and that's uh, because
1: not on my. I'm just looking. What are this? Way, I'm looking at one specific place, the one specific tasting I was at, and there are uh, just counting them up here. About two dozen cab francs here. So
0: go ahead. What was your next one? Uh, well, I'm just. I just want to talk a little bit about Breton because um, that is that is one winery where they are doing. Um, I guess a little bit more natural style of winemaking. They go lighter on the sulfur. And, uh, one of my favorite wines of all time is the Nuit Dupes. Uh, anyone who's been to my house has seen, I have a couple bottles from special occasions. Like that's a wine that has just followed me along in my relationship with my wife. And also, um, in my career as a, as a wine writer. Um, the first time I tasted that wine was in France in 2014, where we visited a fantastic restaurant in Paris. It was the second cheapest wine on the menu. And I didn't know anything about natural wine at that point or anything about the movement. I don't even think that the marketing engine behind natural wine had really kicked off until then. It was good wine because it was good wine. And I wanted to visit the producer because, frankly, I wanted to buy a couple of bottles directly from the producer, save a few dollars. Because it's not terribly expensive and still not terribly expensive. But uh, it's still cheaper to buy from the producers and do a full tasting at Breton. and um I really, Andre.
1: Andre, I just want to stop you there for a second.
0: I, I'm I'm actually listening to your to your voice
1: uh, yeah. with your your COVID voice, and uh, I think you should think about getting COVID more often. Oh, why is it? You one more... sound battle. You're not as nasally. You're not as whiny. So, uh, oh, so, yeah. shut
0: up. Uh, yeah, we went. So we went through the we went through the portfolio. Uh, is a de Bourgogne. Um, and we tasted some of the more higher-end, like the higher-end wines were really only retailing for about 30 euros a bottle. So you're looking at about $40, $45 Canadian to buy them from the producer. And um, like the higher-end wines were outstanding. Uh, still had that vegetal note. I know you and I have talked about whether or not Franck needs, or, or the vegetal note is an important part of Cabernet Franc. Well, I, I think, okay, so the green pepper part I don't think,
1: but uh, kind of a tobacco note, yes, I think that is something that definitely makes Cabernet Franc, but I never want the green pepper note. I always find that under ripe tomato leaf, uh, uh, tomato stock, green pepper, even red pepper. N- none of them I want in Cabernet Franc, and I'm sure. Allison would tell us that uh, yeah, you want it, but I, I don't I don't want it
0: see and, that's, and and that's and that's where I was, so when we were in Samir, they had like the um the the wine tourist people they have um like they have an office space in downtown Suir where you can go and taste a bunch of wines um frankly this the stuff that that gave me the fizz the stuff that really really moved me at um at at the tasting there were some of the off dry you know kind of late harvest um Uh, botrytis-affected shannon's that i tasted from in and around the area but the cabernet franc like every cabernet franc rosé that was that was poured for us it just like it just cemented the fact that when pigs fly will never be a cabernet franc rosé and i'm trying to choose my words carefully so i don't end up like malivore style making guilty men but it's just like i don't want to have to set foot in a restaurant and and explain like why my my rosé that's been pretty and floral and you know, gone through the the different challenges of warm and cool vintages, but at the same time, have a commonality of what Pinot tastes like. Um, but you know, vegetal rosé is is hard. Like it's it's hard to sit on a patio and and crush back a vegetal rosé. And I, I don't I don't mind food wines, but like I don't know, I just hate the idea of like rosé being a food wine. You know.
1: Well, so what I what I discovered when it, when I was in in the lore. And uh, we did we did a, uh, a rosé tasting. We had a, a, a large amount of them, and uh, if you do look at the rosé report, you'll notice that all there is is a page. Like there's not that much from the Loire Valley, uh, and and a lot of them were were had that vegetal note to it. A lot of them were sweet, and they know it. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, it's a style. It's admit. a style. They go we we do sweet rosé. We have not jumped onto the dry rosé bandwagon, which I. Th- really surprising considering that you know the the big rosé from france is provence which is like almost bone dry
0: well i mean here's something we have to think about michael and i think this is something you and i we i don't know how we're going to do it but we could definitely tackle it at at a future podcast but it's the it's the regionality that comes with with wine tastes right um there was a lot of loire valley a lot of a lot of um a lot of regional rosé on wine lists at different bistros and restaurants. And they were the off dry ones, which means, which means the locals are drinking it and liking it uh, because it's the other part of the, of the business. And this is why I said like a lot of how, um, you know, I was affected by Saumur and the tastings around there was more as the marketer. And just keeping in mind that if this is the style of wines that are being made, who's drinking them? And, I mean, if you're a business well, owner and you
1: you answered your own question, it was the locals,
0: but I mean, that's it. So you're not making wines for the, for the, the export market. And, you know, as, as a result, you just need to be mindful of your, your supply and demand. And, and um, you know, I guess a lot of those wines from the Loire Valley are just not my style. Cause you talked about the off dry rosés. Um, you know, I tasted a bunch of them as a critic. There was nothing wrong with them. They were well-made. They had a certain amount of balance. um, Maybe the sweetness—not maybe the sweetness—definitely lingered longer than I would like. But they weren't faulted. They tasted like Cabernet Franc. Like as a critic, these are good oh, wines, just no. not wines I would drink.
1: Don't get me, don't get me on that one. There was uh, we—I uh, tasted some faulted stuff. I taste—I tasted some really good stuff. Um, uh, but I, I, I'm looking for more of a dry rosé. Like I, I don't mind a teeny bit of sweetness. I don't mind a little bit off dry. But some of them were just sickeningly sweet. Like. And not just fruit sweet. It was just, you
0: know, there's, you know,
1: a pile of sugar in there and you're like, "Ah."
0: okay, so so thankfully, thankfully I never, I never tasted any of those, but like obviously I'm taking a look at at, I didn't take a ton of notes because like I said, I was on on vacation. So the stuff that made an impact is stuff that, you know, stuff that stood out a little bit more, but I didn't taste any rosé that was like sickening sweet. I think the highest I got was about 20 grams per liter residual sugar.
1: Well, so, just to talk about some, some red cab francs that, that, that I, uh, I tasted, Yeah. Uh, because I think, I think we were more, more talking about, or at least I th- thought we were about the, about red cabernet franc, not the rosé in particular. Um, and, and I, the two that stand out on my list here were a Chateau de Chantret, yeah. uh, which I gave four stars to. And I thought it was a very modern style of of Cabernet Franc, and the other one was by a Domaine de Nerlu, which I gave four plus stars to. And again, very modern, uh, you know, ten percent new wood, um, lots of lots of fruit. There were still those green ones, but there. Anybody who was, I thought, doing a a modern style of rosé was letting it. I uh, sorry of uh, of of red Cabernet Franc was letting it hang a little longer, was not, you know, was, was, was doing a good job. It was the old school guys who were still trying to create the green pepper notes, uh, that, that, you know, really turned me off of, uh, of the Cabernet Franc. And I was, I was expecting not to like Cabernet Franc from the Loire because I have always been an Ontario Cab Franc person and I have always thought we do it better uh i still think we do it better but i think the loire i I, this sounds really condescending but it's catching up but i think it's there's a modern approach where it's a relatively modern approach because we were theoretically modern
0: i think i think that that is the point that i was making making as well if the locals are drinking it why do you need to adjust your style and um i think when you're a country like france there's not a lot of reason to look outward, right? If you have a local market that's already consuming your product because I, I was really reflecting on on that. and um, it came to me when I had two very positive experiences in in Burgundy and I, I'm like, I'll, I'll get to those a little bit later, but it was just about whether people are looking inward versus outward. Like if if I owned a winery in Burgundy and my product was selling out every year, like why would I give a crap what's happening in Oregon or um, or Ontario, right? I mean, other than if you want to make sure that you're making really good wine, you need to be tasting other people's stuff. Um, but I was also thinking about like my trips to California in the in the past where, you know, the local producers are just like, oh, this this Pinot Noir tastes just like burgundy, and then they hit your glass with a fifteen and a half percent, you know, stewed fruit cherry bomb. And you and I do you and I do not like that style of Pino, right?
1: The the cherry bomb, it's got its place. Um, I don't like, uh, I've had things like, uh, I think there's one called cherry pie out of the States. Um, I've had it. And, um, what's that old saying? There was one old French winemaker who came over, tried California Pinot, and he said, it's wine. It's just not Pinot.
0: Yeah. Well, but I mean, okay. So you and I are on the same page for that, but it's also the winemakers there are not wrong. I mean, that style is not wrong. That style serves the market and people in California clearly love it or, you wouldn't keep making wine in that style, right?
1: And there are a lot of people who buy it. Don't don't get me wrong. There are tons of people who uh, uh, who buy it. As a, as somebody who does uh, inventories, wine sellers, uh, there's a lot of people who have a lot of of California Pinot.
0: Yeah. So I shelf. mean, you, when you talk about when you talk about catching up, <laughs> I think it's just maybe becoming more aware of different styles of Cabernet Franc outside of the Loire Valley, and that's now having an influence as things are coming back. When producers will have the opportunity to see the potential to get the region known, make a little bit more money, and create a product for export. And um, so the second place that stood out for me was a winery called uh, Thierry Germain. It was uh, Domaine de Roche Neuve, so um, Domaine of the the New Rocks. And uh, don't get me wrong, the, the wines there were really great. And what uh, what the proprietor is doing there is really kind of a Burgundian take on the viticulture, where he owns, like, small plots of lands, literally all in and around, like, Saumur Champigny, and he's vinifying them separate, some of them are getting blended together, he's doing some stuff with, um, like, doing some stuff with amphoras as well, but, like, when it came to buy a couple of bottles, the wines were, like, 30 to 70 euros a bottle, and it was just, like, listen, this is really good Cabernet Franc, it's It's on par with some of the the best franc that I've had from Ontario. But like even the red shale from from Trius is like 50 bucks, 55 bucks Canadian. Even what they're doing at Stratus where they let it hang and you're getting these like beautiful, you know, full bodied, well developed, well ripened Ontario Cabernet Francs. Like you're looking at 50 bucks a bottle. I don't think your wines are worth 100 bucks a bottle, dude. Like especially not not from the cellar.
1: It's all, it's all, I guess it's all in the winemaker's perception, Andre. You could sell a bottle for a hundred bucks. You just got to get people to buy it at that, at that price. Obviously he's selling it at a hundred bucks.
0: Yeah, totally. And I mean, if, if people are, people are buying it, like that's good for him. I want to see people, I want to see people succeed, right? I want to see people make money, but also like as a consumer, like as a consumer who buys a lot of wine in, in an average year, you know. I, I don't want to feel ripped off when I get back home and and put that bottle in my cellar, and I, well, I don't no, think, I, I don't have I don't well, have many let's, bottles let's, from Burgundy worth a hundred bucks a bottle in my cellar.
1: Let let's let's you know bring it all back home for a quick second, uh, you know, two sisters, lovely winery makes great wine. Am Pierce is a fantastic winemaker, but there's a new winery that that's being made, Stone Eagle Winery, which is by two sisters. And, you know, the Stone Eagle is $100 plus a bottle. This whole winery is going to be based on 100 dollar bottles of wine.
0: Well, good for them, as long as they have a market for it. I mean, the odds of me purchasing that wine are, are slim. And I think out of the two of us, like you and I have, have talked at length about what we spend on wine. It is not unusual for me to spend $100 on a bottle of wine. But I'm very selective on where that happens
1: and you I can't think of uh and I could be wrong here I don't think you've ever bought a hundred dollar bottle of Ontario wine
0: I have not um my ceiling I think the most I've ever spent was on the um the ultra that Flat Rock made at seventy dollars and that's still sitting in my sitting in my cellar and I'm not sure if when I open that i I will feel it was worth the worth the money. Uh, and I'm sorry because I know the people from Flat Rock listen to the listen to the podcast, but I don't have any qualms about spending that money because I had the money at the time. But even then, like I know it was a risky purchase.
1: You know, the other interesting part is, as somebody who also uh, does wine tours of the area, and uh, you know, I get everything from novice people to uh, you know some seasoned veterans uh, of the uh, of the of Ontario wine. And uh, they see a hundred dollars, and they balk at it. Uh, I don't think Ontario is is there yet. In the you know, we are in the Napa uh, realm of now uh, uh, people paying for tastings. Yeah, right. Um, and that's a very Napa experience. I, I,
0: um, I also think. It, I also think it's a. I think it's it's a. It's a positive, a positive change that's coming around because. Um, well,
1: I I know that you know. I, I think we both get emails of people you know, bitching about the uh, the the tasting fees. Uh, it's it's a topic for another time. Yeah, obviously. totally. But um, I don't think that we are at the Napa level of hundred dollar bottles of wine yet.
0: No, we're not. I think, and, and we've you're right. Got talking
1: about dollar t- bottles out there, we have. Uh, Seventy five dollar. I know we have hundred dollar bottles out there, but I don't think we are at that level quite yet where, where people flock to to spend a hundred dollars on a bottle of Ontario wine.
0: Well I think I think I think like a solid benchmark for, for what a cult winery might be in Ontario is uh five rows. And even then, um like I think they were like six sixty five dollars a bottle for their expense like for their their reds their reds last year
1: well the, I, I know we're getting off topic here but there's also no there's well, no, no resale value in in ontario
0: wine totally it's,
1: there, there's just no secondary market for the wines yet and we may get there but when you buy a hundred dollar bottle of wine it doesn't appreciate to a point where you're going to make anything whereas bordeaux and burgundy they have that cachet california italy you know, they have that cachet where their wines will appreciate in value. Our wines are not there
0: yet. That's, that's completely a great point. And frankly, I didn't even think about resale because I'm not buying bottles to resell, even in my cellar with what I'm spending, I'm buying bottles to enjoy. And like, like I said, like I had a Domaine de Roche the wines are fantastic. I, I just, I could not justify spending the money in it. And it broke my heart because the wines were fantastic. So that was one thing where, uh Yeah, and, and, and here's the other thing, too, is the red still had the vegetal note to them. It had the bell pepper, but it was very well rained, well-controlled. Um, The yep. third winery we went to was uh, Domaine Giberto, and that was at the recommendation of Josh Correa from Archive, who has been on this podcast.
1: And it was which one again? I'm just checking.
0: Uh, Domaine Giberto, G-U-I-B-E-R-T-E-A-U. Nope, I don't have that one either. Not on I... this little list. It
1: could, I, I could have it somewhere else. Trust me. They gave us so many wines, but I was just looking specifically at uh, a 24 bottle Cabernet Franc tasting that we did do uh, at Sum in uh, Sumar uh, Champagne. Yeah.
0: Did you see the castle? Uh, I don't remember. Okay. Probably. Um, Probably. Yeah. The uh, Domaine Gilberto, I bought a yeah, bottle. But I could have
1: fallen asleep through
0: it. Yeah. Sounds. Sounds like something you would do. Uh, Domaine Giberto, I uh, I picked up a bottle of of red. They work with four different um, four different uh, appellations: Les Moulin, Domaine, uh, La Chope d'Aise, and Les was One thing that I found uh, interesting about the wineries that we tasted at was like there was a style where some of the Cabernet Franc gets hit for longer periods of time in heavier toasted, newer barrels, and it, it felt like a very like Henry of Palembaco approach to dealing with Cabernet Franc. Um, I didn't get to taste any of these wines aged because um, it's clear they were built to spend time in a cellar. But in their youth, like, it was a lot of vanilla, a lot of fruit, and then the, the bell pepper notes. Like, I thought that was a fascinating way to deal with the Franc. And I, I, I hope that that cell doesn't come to Ontario.
1: <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's it's just the way the trepidation in your voice that, from that was actually pretty funny. <laughs> well, I, I and I didn't know where you're going with it. It was like I mean, just it's, it's, it's let the me whole thing for each word. Well, and it's a whole, I hope that doesn't come to Ontario.
0: Well, it's the whole thing about trying to be like respectful of an entire of an entire region and their winemaking style, right? Like, just because I didn't like the wines and just because I didn't think that they were worth the money doesn't mean that I'm right, right? It just means that as a, as a consumer that the region is, is wrong for what they're doing. It just means that I'm clearly not the consumer for their wines. And that's,
1: I guess that's the, the way it goes. I, I, as I said, I tasted 24. I have some with big X's through them, but obviously they have a, 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 a calling, uh, and a, and a customer base that likes their wines, uh, or else you wouldn't make that wine in, in that style anymore. You would change your style. um, and and I and I think that's that that, that runs the gamut ac- across the world, right? Everybody's got their own style, and somebody's buying your wine. Uh, and as long as enough people are buying it that you are, you know, breaking even, hopefully making a little money,
0: you'll continue that way. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, that's what running but, a wine business is like. Yeah, right um do we want it like we, we've been talking for a half hour now uh do we want to talk about burgundy or should we save that for another one because i don't know if i've got uh, i have a ton ton. no to, nah, i could i can do another one about burgundy after uh, i would uh i would save it all right let's let's do that because um like i said i'm trying really hard not to keep the blinders on when it comes to when it comes to burgundy but i still think my favorite wines and the best wines in ontario are, are pinot noir and chardonnay as of right now 2022 and gamay um but yeah, let's let's wrap this one up. I'm Andre Pru from underwinereview.ca. Follow me on social media at Andre Wine Review.
1: And I'm Michael Pincus of Michael Uh you can follow me on social media as the Grape Guy. Uh, also on uh, on YouTube and obviously with this podcast and uh, Facebook. I think
0: I'm just Michael Pincus. Yeah. Well, take us away then.
1: All right. Well then uh, Andre, I think I'm gonna go have myself a glass of cap fronk. You talked me into it. So good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.